The Secrets of Doctor Who is brought to you by the StarQuest Production Network and is made possible by our many generous patrons. If you'd like to support the podcast, please visit sqpn.com slash give. You're listening to The Secrets of Doctor Who, episode 199. One day, I shall come back. That's it. I've been renewed. As when a Time Lord's body wears out, he regenerates. I'm a Time Lord. I'm not a human being. I walk in eternity. Bravehearty. Change, my dear. And it seems on a moment too soon. Unlimited vice pudding. Physician, he Wearing a bit thin. Fantastic. Allons-y! I am Scottish. I can complain about things. Should be fine. Hi, I'm Dom Bettinelli, and you're listening to The Secrets of Doctor Who, where we discuss everything about the hit BBC series, Doctor Who. And today we're discussing the fourth Doctor story, Pyramids of Mars. And joining me today on the panel are Father Corey Stika. Hi, Father Corey. How's it going? Very well, thanks. And Jimmy Aiken. Hi, Jimmy. Howdy, Dom. Folks, I'm going to ask you to do something very, very easy for me, but very important. And that is, could you please, once you are done listening to this episode, please go to Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts from and write a review for us. Could you please? A nice five-star review, because that helps us get the podcast out in front, in front of so many more people. It's part of the algorithm. Write a review. Boop, it pops up in front of people. So that that's like the, the number two way that we get new listeners is by you writing a review. The number one way is when you share the podcast with your friends. This all helps grow this community of listeners. And the bigger the community, the better the podcast, because the podcast is bigger on the inside. So <laughs> let's talk about this episode called The Pyramids of Mars, except we don't actually see any pyramids on Mars. No, uh, in it's this. <laughs> false advertising. I know, I know. <laughs> so this is a, a fourth Doctor story. As I mentioned, it's the third serial of the second season of Tom Baker's era. And his companion at this point is just Sarah. Well, mm-hmm. not just Sarah. It's, I mean, Sarah Jane is, you know. Only she, Sarah. She's enough on um, her own. Only Sarah, yes. So it starts with, we see a picture of pyramids in Egypt, not Giza. Right. Well, we see a postcard of Egypt. Yes. Or at least that's what it looks like. <laughs> I wanted to comment on the fact that this is a Philip Hinchcliffe era story. Philip Hinchcliffe was the showrunner at the time. He was the equivalent of a of a Stephen Moffat or a Chris Chibnall. And he really liked gothic, mm-hmm. the gothic aesthetic. And so in this era of the show, we've got a lot of gothic-inspired stories. In fact, I read that every storyline this season, I'm not sure exactly how that's measured, but everyone is a tribute to some kind of famous gothic story. One that I know we have coming up is a tribute to Frankenstein. That's the brain of Morbius. But this one is like the mummy and the the curse of King Tut and stuff like that. It originally was written by another guy, but they found his scripts unusable. And so the stalwart Robert Holmes uh, rewrote them under a pseudonym. So this is a pseudo Robert Holmes story, which is always awesome. Interesting. Except when it's not. Yeah, that explains why this is such a good one and and disclosure this is one of my favorite fourth doctor stories so yeah and in fact it's been used before like when the bbc would do retrospectives on doctor who they would like pick a story from each doctor's era and this was used for tom baker it was also voted by the fans as representative of his era although personally i would go with the talons of wang chiang yeah right but but it's uh you know we've, we've talked before with new who of like what are episodes that you would use for new who to introduce people to Doctor yeah. Who. I would say this would be one of the classic Who examples. Hmm. Yeah, because it really does have everything that, that you want in, in a Doctor Who episode. Or Doctor and it's Who an story. entertaining, in my opinion, entertaining episode. So right. Also, like the horror of Fang Rock, this is one where, just for once, everybody dies. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> it's the anti-Moffat. So it opens with... Pyramids, but not at Giza. These are not uh, the, the the pyramids of Khufu. This is uh, in Egypt. There's a dig and the opening of a tomb, and we find out it's 1911. And mm-hmm. we have a perfectly preserved tomb. No, nothing mm-hmm. has been disturbed inside. Uh, and we have this Professor Scarman who is in the tomb, and he finds the a glowing gem in the eye of Horus behind a, 
a remarkably preserved tapestry, uh, frankly, yeah. <laughs> for being yeah. thousands this, of years old. So the Eye of Horus is a real thing from Egyptology. Horus was the falcon-headed sky god and the son of Osiris. And you, he had, you know, you always see his head in profile because that's the way they tended to draw people. And so he's got this human-like eye, but it's stylized, and you see it represented a lot in Egyptian art. So whenever you see this kind of stylized eye maybe hanging there by itself, that's the Eye of Horus. Right. And uh, so there's a glowing gem in the middle, and it turns out it's, it's all part of a door to an inner chamber. The, the Egyptian uh, diggers that have been helping Professor Scarman, by the way, have run off uh, because of... Uh, Smartest people in the series. <laughs> exactly. <Yeah. laughs> so he opens the door, and inside the door is this strange purple chamber. It's a very, it's the, unlike uh, an Egyptian tomb. And then Scarman is, he's bathed in a green light, screams, and collapses. Boom, we're done with the teaser. <laughs> so that's, that's yep. it for the opener. And probably done for Professor Scarman. Then we switch to the doctor in the console room, the, the, the control room of the TARDIS, and he's, he's looking quite morose at this he's, point. He's, he's having his emo moment. Yeah, he really <laughs> yes. is. Yeah. Uh, and Sarah Jane comes in wearing an old-fashioned dress, and at first he calls her Vicky and then says it was one of Victoria's dresses that she's wearing. Yeah. We just met, uh, met Victoria in the, the, the rescue, so uh, that's kind of interesting juxtaposition not the rescue was it the evil of the daleks that we the evil of the daleks yeah. victoria yeah so yeah. she her her dad was involved in 19th century time travel experiments and victoria waterhouse yep. and she was from the 19th century and she didn't last very long as a companion but she was a companion of the second doctor patrick troughton and she was there at the same time as jamie was and right. it's nice to get a shout out to that era here also, yes. it since we're going to 1910, it it gets Sarah Jane into 1911 appropriate <laughs> garb so that right. we don't have to deal with why is this woman wearing pants and stuff. Yep. <laughs> yes, she's <laughs> underdressed. So the the doctor is he's morose because he's talking about it's time he stopped running around after the brigadier as part of unit and. Yeah. I'm and a time this, lord. I walk in time in eternity. Yeah, this is the I'm you don't understand. I'm a time lord. I'm not a human. I walk in eternity speech, which gets yes. quoted a bunch. Right. It, in fact, is in our opening. <laughs> and it turns out he's basically uh, recognizing that he's middle age. I love that. There he goes. <laughs> yes. So something like middle age. Yes. <laughs> Says he's something like 750 years old at this point. But mm. little does he know he's far older than that. Yes. Yep. Uh, <laughs> Thanks, Chris Chibnall. The new who changes everything. So, uh, so, but while he, they're having this discussion, the TARDIS is suddenly thrown sideways and they're tossed about inside. And uh, while she, the doctor's facing the wrong way, Sarah Jane sees a vision of a strange animal-like skull hanging in midair in the TARDIS. Or uh, mask. Or, yes, it could, be a, it could be a mask. But yeah, it looks something like a strange animal. It's, um, well, that's because it's meant to be set. Yes. Mm -hmm. Set had, uh, or Sutek, to use another name for him, Set was, or Sutek as they call him in this episode, was an Egyptian god of the dead, and he was the brother and enemy of Osiris, and he was associated with a, with a mythological animal. Most of the Egyptian gods were associated with animals that are easily identifiable, like Horus is a falcon, mm -hmm. or has a falcon head. But Set has this weird animal. It's kind of like a dog, but it's got a longer taper-like snout. Mm -hmm. And it's also got like weird ears and a weird tail. And so that's what that mask is meant to be. But Egyptologists aren't sure what this animal is supposed to represent. And so is it a stylized animal that really exists? Or is it an extinct animal? Or is it just a mm. mythological animal and since they don't know they don't really know they just egyptologists refer to it as the set animal <laughs> right so they were headed for unit headquarters in 1980 or 19 whatever the 19 whenever yeah <laughs> yeah whatever it is the time that the shower gene came from that's where they were headed uh but because of this event they landed in the right location but 70 years earlier in 1911 mm -hmm. and uh and they were inside a building, this this old, I think it was Abbey, uh, like an Priory. old Abbey, Priory. Um, but in this room, 
full of Egyptian artifacts, and the Doctor says, something is very wrong, which... If it wasn't, there wouldn't be an episode. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, he's sensing something wrong with time. Yes. But they comment, yeah, the unit headquarters was built on the site of the old priory that burned down. So right there is Chekhov's old priory fire. <laughs> right, right. Uh, meanwhile, there's a guy in another room wearing a fez because fezes are cool. Aren't uh, they? Pl- playing a pipe organ, uh, having pulled out all the stops, i.e. it is very loud. Uh, yep. you know, that's where that phrase comes from. And a uh, a servant comes in and interrupts uh, to tell him that somebody has arrived. Uh, another man has barged in. His name is Professor Warlock. We had some great names in this episode. Oh, Professor yeah. Warlock, <laughs> Professor Scarman. Like, this would be great for, like, a game of Clue. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> Sin- really sinister Clue. Peacock yes. and, you know, Captain Peacock. <laughs> and <laughs> Mustard. <laughs> so, uh, Professor Warlock is a friend of Professor Scarman, that, the guy in Egypt that we saw earlier. Uh, the man in the fez, his name is Ibrahim Namin, and he says he's been asked by Scarman to to precede him back from Egypt and to allow no one admittance to the house and the in, and, and the Egyptian relics until he and, returns. And, yeah, yeah, and there's there's a good reason in theory for not letting anybody in. It's because all these artifacts have not yet been cataloged, and they don't mm-hmm. want any of them to go missing. So don't let anybody into the house until I can get back and catalog all this stuff. And that's right. reasonable. I also, I really like all the Egyptian props they have. They've got a bunch of really cool-looking sarcophagi. Mm-hmm. The, uh, and the nice gothic themes in this with the mummies and the old house and the sinister organ playing. And... <laughs> <Yes>. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you got to have a sinister o- organ playing. Uh... They, they, must, they must have really raided the uh, BBC prop room, though, to get all the artifacts. <laughs> yeah. That's right. So the, uh, the servant, his name's Collins, he, meanwhile, he finds the doctor and Sarah, they materialize into this locked wing of the of the house. And so they're trying to get out of this room. The doctor has a French lock picking device in his coat, which is this weird, funny contraption uh, that he was about to use. By the way, I meant to mention, even though they've beamed into like the prop room or the storeroom for all the Egyptian artifacts with the TARDIS, nobody notices the TARDIS. It's right. like hey, none of the robots, none of the yep. villains. Hey, what's this police box doing in here? Nobody, <laughs> nobody says anything like that. There's a perception filter on it, right? Yeah, yeah I guess. Well, well, it, well, at first it beams, or it beams in, it materializes behind a bunch of the sarcophagi, so you yes. can't see it. You just see where the the light turns on as they open the door. Right. Later on, yeah, when it's out there, yeah, that's yeah. So, um, the the servant thinks that they've come in with Doctor Warlock, and he he warns them. That Namin, the Ibrahim Namin, has a terrible temper. So that's uh, get that get that out there. That little character point. Meanwhile, as they're going to climb out the window and uh, of the of this room and, and and sneak off, but as Collins watches them go, a sarcophagus opens behind him. He yells. We we hear him yell from outside, and a Warlock and Namin come running, and they find he's been strangled. Oh, and I love how this. I love the interplay. Between uh, between Doctor Warlock and Namin, Warlock is focused. He's very practical and calm, and he's focused on the fact that the butler has just been strangled, and Namin is just off in a world on his own. <laughs> and yes. and I was so struck by this, I got a little clip of it. So let's just listen for the difference in how the two characters are reacting to the situation. Poor fellow. He's been strangled. The gods have returned. I, Ibrahim Namin, servant of the true faith, rejoice in their power. Get the police. His ascent can't have got far. You blind, pathetic fool. The servants of the all-powerful have arisen. When the temple is cleansed of all unbelievers, the High One himself will come among us. This is how it was written. Yes, I see. Right, is what we might say today. Sure. Yeah, and then remaining practical, Doctor Warlock says, "Let's get the police," and and Namin shoots him. (laughs) Yeah. Well, should should mention too, Namin is being played by he's an Egyptian being played by a British actor because, of course, that's what they did back then. Of course, yes. So Namin is about to kill Warlock here. Uh, He does shoot him. But yeah. uh, but the doctor uh, jumps in and stops him like from from actually killing him. He throws a scarf over his head and yeah. pulls him to the ground. 
and deflects the shot a little bit, but he still gets hit. And yeah. this is something that is uh, bad on the director's part, because I had to watch this twice to catch what happened. Yeah. But as because they're focusing on the doctor and the scarf having Namine on the ground and and you can't see the rest of the set clearly because mm-hmm. of the shot. But if you watch carefully in the background, you'll see that Sarah Jane Smith runs into the room and grabs Dr. Warlock and escorts him out. Yeah. And so otherwise, if you don't notice that, it's like, wait, how are the doctor and Sarah Jane and, and Dr. Warlock all outside all of a sudden? It's because Sarah Jane usher, came in and got him out. Right. There's a, yeah, they should have had a wide angle instead of a close up that they did. So uh, when they're, while they're gone, Namine opens the sarcophagus that's standing there. And there's inside, there's a very not human looking mummy inside that he commands <laughs> with a big green ring. So he's apparently Green Lantern. Yeah. Corps. He he's oh I hadn't thought of that yeah the the mummy the mummy has like a helmet under its bandages so you can yep. see the outline of the helmet it also has big broad shoulders and a chest piece yes that that really diminishes any belly fat appearance that it might otherwise have it's got this like <laughs> I have to get rib cage rib cage really sticking out far yeah. yeah take Arnold Schwarzenegger and add another layer of muscle. right right it's very (laughs) weird but it's controlled by by the blinky ringy thing yes so uh so as you mentioned warlock has been shot and they've been running away outside and he collapses to the ground as they run sarah is then sent to go get scarman's brother so professor scarman's brother lives on the grounds of the house but in in a lodge nearby but she ends up having to hide as this mummy walks past her hiding place. Yeah. My notes say slow chase in the forest. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right. And Namine, meanwhile, is stalking the doctor who's now carrying Warlock. Then he, he hears something, he says something about a god descending. And so he and the mummy leave. And that's when Sarah comes back with Scarman's brother, uh, who is, his name is uh, Lawrence. So uh, mm-hmm. the Scarman himself, the Professor Scarman, I forget, it's Marcus. That's right. Mark and yeah. Lawrence. So uh, Lawrence Scarman is played by an actor who we've seen several times in Dark Two and in other things. Uh, Michael Sheard has been also. We saw him recently, in fact, in uh, The Mind of Evil, uh, the third mm. Doctor story. Mm-hmm. And he's also he was also in Castrovalva, which is a fifth mm-hmm. Doctor story. We've seen both of those. And, and Remembrance of the Daleks, which we yep. saw with the seventh Doctor. He was the headmaster in that one. And he's also Admiral Piet, as I always want to mention, in Empire Strikes Back, <laughs> oh. who has who comes to a bad end for coming out of hyperspace too close to the system and alerting and, and, the rebels. And, and while we're mentioning actors, uh, Scarman, uh, Professor Scarman was Bernard Archard, and he was yep. Reagan, head of security on Power of the Daleks. Oh. So the second, the first, second Doctor's story. That's right. That's right. It's, it's Doctor Who. All the British actors are always in Doctor Who everywhere. All, every one of them. At one point or another. So uh, Namine, meanwhile, is praying before another sarcophagus in the house in the same room that the uh, the organ was in. And so he's praying to that and bowing before it. So something important is going to happen there. Warlock, meanwhile, is in Lawrence's lodge. And uh, his wound seems to have been treated by putting him in a sling, I guess. And he seems to be and quite well. Letting, it, letting him rest <laughs> in a chair. Yes. Mm-hmm. And uh, that, that apparently is enough to, 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 to heal him right up. That guy is... Very uh, uh, <laughs> resilient. There was, there was a surprising <laughs> amount of blood from that mm-hmm. wound, too, for British yeah. television. I mean, oftentimes yeah. you get people shot, and this is true of, like, American Westerns, too, in the old days, at least. You know, the people get shot, they just fall over, and there's no blood. Yes. But uh, there is blood here, which is interesting. Mm-hmm. Right. Lawrence, meanwhile, turns out to be an inventor, and he's yes. and the doctor, a good one, because the doctor compliments him. He's invented a desktop radio telescope. 40 years before any radio <laughs> telescope, much less a desktop one, has been yep. invented. Yes. Although he doesn't know what to call it, so he's called it a Marconi scope after Marconi, who invented radio. Yep, that's right. Yeah, he wants to call the police. The doctor says no, because something is interfering with time, and that's his jurisdiction. Sarah Jane tells him that their time travel is from 1980. Oh, yeah, and this is, she, this is a pivotal thing, and this episode is a pivotal one in the unit dating controversy. Yes. Because Sarah Jane explicitly and repeatedly says she's from 1980. Yep. 
but other unit era stories suggest the 1970s or earlier in the 1970s. This episode came out 75, so she would have been five years in the future. Right. Um, So when Scarman demonstrates his radio telescope, it kind of goes out of control and burns out the, 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 I think it's a tube or something or but, oh uh, yeah, totally vacuum tube right there goes up, yeah. goes up in flames, and uh, it, because it's a powerful signal emanating from Mars, and uh, when the doctor decodes it somehow, uh, it says "Beware, Sutek," uh, also known as Set. Yeah, we, that's a that's an important message apparently. Namine, meanwhile, is playing the organ again while three mummies stand in front of the sarcophagus, and suddenly it becomes a kind of portal, and a figure comes through, wearing his costume. Yeah, and it it's interesting. I like the special effects with this this sarcophagus, which they keep coming back to mm-hmm. throughout the story. Uh, it it's got you know the face of an an external human face, yep. of a pharaoh, and he's wearing the headdress, and he's got the his arms crossed and the crook and the flail, you know, on the outside of the sarcophagus. But one of the things they do in this story, and not just in this episode, but eventually when we get to Mars, they do something similar is they integrate the sets with, the physical sets with chroma key. Yeah. So, like, the headdress, if you think about what an Egyptian headdress looks like for a pharaoh, it's got those two different bands, like one light band, one dark band. And what they do with this sarcophagus is they take all of the light bands and they put chroma key special effects behind it. So you've got this pattern of light playing across the surface of this thing, but only in the light bands of the headdress. Right. The others look solid. Right. And then, then, and they later, when we get to Mars, they do something similar with the set where we can clearly see much of the set is physical, but there are these slots in the set that have chroma key lighting effects in them to make right. it look both real and ethereal at the same time. Right. Also, when the sarcophagus is active, you get this tunnel effect that's different than the vortex effect we mm-hmm. see in the opening credits. Instead, it looks like you're traveling down a tunnel of Christmas tree lights. Mm-hmm. Right. Yes. Yeah. Uh, but when the, when the figure comes out of it, he's, he's all in black. It's like this black rubber suit. And every, I mean, he's just jet black. And it's got the same kind of helmet that must be under mm-hmm. those mummy wrappings. Right. That's true. I didn't think of that. Well, it, it's interesting too on the on the sarcophagus. You know, it's it's gold and blue. And I, if I remember correctly, I think the BBC traditionally used blue screen. You know, we talk about green yeah. screen. You know, the mm. weather people use green screen, but I think traditionally the BBC used blue because, of course, chroma key can be any color, really, yeah, any color just, that can stand out from everything else. Right. So they they made that actually put like Jimmy said, made it part of the set where it was they didn't have to like fill in gaps or anything it was just they could chroma key it right in um so namin thinks it's sutek and declares himself servant of sutek but the figure says that it is the servant of sutek and sutek needs no other and so he fires him literally <laughs> he, yeah well. he kills him basically burns him up and <laughs> i like the effect for that he puts his hands on namin's shoulders as namin is kneeling before him yeah. And Nami and smoke starts coming out from Namin's jacket. So they've got like, you know, a smoke generator, smoke somehow. generator yeah. or dry ice or something that they're using to make that smoke. Yeah, it was pretty good practical effect. Uh, so the servant then transforms into Professor Scarman, the, the one from mm-hmm. who was in Egypt. He departs with the mummies in some canopic jars that uh, he's identified as being uh, some kind of, it's a shield. They're putting up a shield around the, mm-hmm. the grounds field. of the priory, a force field. Yeah, yes. they, they call the canopic jars generator loops. Yep. And, oh, and for people who may wonder what a canopic jar is, it's a tomb artifact where when they embalmed you, they'd take out certain internal organs. Mm-hmm. and put them in these jars, and each jar has the head of a different deity on it. Mm. Right. And so they're meant to preserve your organs for for all eternity, but in this case, they're generator loops. Mm. I give you my heart. It's over there in that jar. Uh, yeah. <laughs> oh. And this is where we learn that Sutek is trying to break free of his captivity. This is, We're getting a little dialogue that explains that. The doctor explains here, to Sarah and, and Lawrence, that the Egyptian gods were aliens, and that Sutek has had destroyed his own planet of Fester 
Osiris. Osiris. And Horus and the others, what we know as Egyptian gods, pursued him to Earth and defeated him. And their wars here entered mythology as the Egyptian uh, and that, gods. And thus the Gwauld were born. I mean, <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> hey, his eyes glow eventually. So, I mean, he's got to be. So, I found it interesting that as soon as Sarah realizes we're dealing with Sutak, I mean, Sarah knows a surprising number of things yes. in this story. One of them is that that Sutek was the brother of Osiris who was killed by his son Horus. Yeah. And that's sort of true in Egyptian mythology. There is a famous, I mean, so the story is Set kills Osiris, and then Osiris's wife Isis puts back together his dismembered body, and they have Horus. And then Horus grows up, and there's a famous cycle of stories known as the contendings of Horus and Seth, where Horus and Seth contend, uh, or Set contend with each other. And Horus wins in these stories, but how he wins varies. The majority of them, I believe, have the two of them sort of dividing up the kingdom among them. Mm-hmm. But in some of them, the minority of them that Sarah seems to be aware of, Horus actually kills Set. And mm-hmm. so she seems to be familiar with that strain. One of the things I like is how the Osirans are a huge threat in this to the Doctor. Mm-hmm. Because he, the Doctor makes it very clear repeatedly, I'm way out of my league here. Right. It, took, it took 740 Osirans just to defeat Seth, and the Time Lords could not stop these people. Right. Set alone would be able to defeat the Time Lords. And so I'm like an insect to this guy. And later mm-hmm. on, when the Doctor finally comes into contact with Set, Set is like able to mop the floor with him and yep. just totally dominate him and refers to him as an ant and a termite and an insect. It's quite a contrast from New Who, where, you know, we have Time Lord Victorious, where the Time Lords mm-hmm. are the most powerful beings in the universe, often, except sometimes they're not. <laughs> when, like, we saw something like that with the 13th Doctor in the most recent season. Yeah. They encountered a, a couple of beings who are more powerful than her. But still, it's nice to see that the, the Time Lords, they may be more powerful than humans, but they're not, they're not at the top of the, of, the, of the pile. You know, all, all powerful with unlimited rife pudding, as the seventh doctor said. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Also, it's bad news that they're so powerful because Sauron, or not, actually, <laughs> so, I, in my notes, I have, for when the servant appears, I have Sauron appears yeah. and, <laughs> and kills Namin. Um, but he says that he's going to bring Sutek's gift of death to humanity yes, because he's thank- like anti-life. He wants all life to die. Thanks. Uh, how can I return that? <laughs> yeah. 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 So the doctor finds out that the sarcophagus is the entrance. Did you bring the receipt with that? <laughs> yeah. Is there a gift receipt on that gift of death? Uh, the doctor discovers that the sarcophagus is an entrance to a time-space tunnel that leads directly back to Sutek. He activates it accidentally and is almost sucked in. Until mm-hmm. he throws something in it and it stops. <laughs> it's the so TARDIS the doc- key. <laughs> right. He hits it with the uh, TARDIS key and it, sh- oh, it shorts it out. That's right. That's right. Uh, meanwhile, we have uh, outside of the building on the grounds, we see this hunter or probably a poacher. Oh, no. He's a poacher. Yeah. yeah. It's, yep. He's very clearly established as a poacher. Oh, okay. Because he's, he's not only carrying a gun, he's got rabbit traps set all over mm-hmm. the place. Right. And so he's checking his traps when he sees one of the mummies with a trap on his foot, which is it's kind of this funny scene of this mummy trying to stomp this trap off the fo- yeah. of his foot. <laughs> and when he runs away, he runs into the what, what they call the deflection field or force field that Marcus yep. Scarman has set up. Meanwhile, the doctor's unconscious from his uh, interaction with the time-space tunnel. Well, yeah, there's a couple of things. I wanted to know, one of them, oh, oh, by the way, the poacher hits an invisible wall, so that's how mm-hmm. we demonstrate yeah. the force field is real. Yeah. Uh, notice how many poachers we get in in Doctor Who stories set yeah. in rural Britain right? in this time period, because all the way back in the third Doctor's debut, Spearhead in Space, we had a poacher. Mm-hmm. And, um, and then again, in the three Doctors, we have... Mm-hmm. He's either a poacher or a gamekeeper. I forget which. Right. 
And then here we've got another poacher. And this is something that Americans may not appreciate. But in British culture, at least for a time, poachers were considered these kind of romantic figures. Mm. They're a little bit like Robin Hood because they are ordinary people who are in tough financial situations that are doing what they can to survive. So even though the Lord is the owner of the property with all this game on it, and you're not actually legally allowed to hunt it, you've got to feed your family and make a living. Mm -hmm. And so what you do is you sneak onto the Lord's manor and you take his game without his consent to feed yourself and your family. And that's viewed as kind of like the little guy standing up for himself. And so Mm. poachers are kind of romantic figures that there's some sympathy for, even though they're technically criminals. Mm -hmm. And there are folk songs about them. I know one folk song, I will not sing it, Um, but I know like one folk song, a British folk song about like the bold poachers, and it talks about all their antics and how they end up with not such a good fate, but they're clearly these romantic figures. And so that's Mm -hmm. one of the reasons we keep getting poachers in this era of Doctor Who. Also, Scarman and the mummies are, there's like three of them now, and I think we eventually see a fourth. Mm Mm-hmm. But the as as they're leaving the pile, the manor house, mm. the doctor and Sarah Jane and Lawrence Scarman are hidden. And Sarah Jane and Lawrence are just like in this trunk in the entry hallway. Oh, right. But the, but the doctor mm. hides behind this statue of Pan. And it is, <laughs> you know, it, the, the Greek uh, yep. satyr uh, mythological figure with the goat legs and the horn and, horns and stuff. But this is the most bizarre statue of Pan I've ever seen, because not only is it Pan, but he's like wearing a a coat, and he's got his hands held out in such a way in front of him that you can clearly see he's got webbed fingers. Oh, so like what? This is the weirdest Pan I've ever seen. I wonder, I wonder what they uh, ch- took it from and re- repurposed it for that. <laughs> yeah, well, maybe. Maybe it's like those, like those uh, entryway butlers where you leave your keys when you come in and out. You know, maybe it's <laughs> oh, maybe. <laughs> Don't know that they had car keys in 1911, but you, maybe you could put your car crank on them. Yeah, there That's you go. Right. <laughs> by the way, the poacher uh, was played yeah. by George Tovey. Mm-hmm. His daughter was Roberta Tovey, who was Susan in the Peter Cushing movies. Oh, oh interesting. So another connect, uh, another who connection there. Another who connection. So, uh, so the doctor having encountered the time space portal is unconscious. Uh, so Lawrence and Sarah they hear uh, Scarman coming back, so they've got to hide quickly. And Lawrence remembers that this room has a priest hole that he discovered as mm-hmm. a child, and so they need to get the doctor into it. And of course, a priest hole. We've talked about them before because we start with yep. the the fifth doctor. They were hidey holes in houses where yep. you would. Catholics would hide a, the, an itinerant priest from the Protestant authorities, right? Yep. Uh, so they would call it, although this is a quite quite small one. Something thanks be to God that we don't need today. Although although traditionally they are fairly small, they're not because yeah. you don't want them to be conspicuous. They're not like you know you, you see like the the hidden corridors, uh, right? Yeah, you know, like we saw in, uh, in the Fifth Doctor. You know, you can wander all the way around the house. No, usually they're they're basically cupboards. You know, they're yeah. places where. Somebody's coming over to inspect, you know, look for this priest. He can hide long enough to avoid detection. In America, we had something similar with the Underground Railroad, where they often had Mm -hmm. uh, hiding places. In fact, the House of Seven Gables in Salem, Massachusetts, has a a, a, essentially what's like a priest hole, which is a core. It's a staircase that opens up next to the the main fireplace and goes up to an attic room where uh, escaped slaves could stay. So very interesting. Mm -hmm. I love love having a priest hole in this. (laughs) Yes. My question is, why in a priory, though? I mean, I guess yeah. what, uh, because I, I understand, like, with Downton Abbey and stuff like that, okay, this house was originally an abbey, which is why it has the name, mm-hmm. but then it got handed over during the busting up of the monasteries, it got handed over to a Protestant family, mm-hmm. and so that's why people are living in it now, and it's no longer yeah. an abbey, I mean, why a family is living in it now. So, but how does that work with a priory? Because if you've got a priory and you bust up the monastery so it's no longer a priory and you hand it over to a Protestant family, they're not going to build a priest hole in it. Um, unless right. they convert it at some point or something, yeah. you know, I mean. Yeah. There's, there's ways they, where it could work. Yeah. But. 
or they were secretly Catholic still. Bum, bum, bum. Yeah. So uh, meanwhile, Zombie Marcus shows up at the lodge and quizzes Professor Warlock, who's still there with the gunshot wound, about where Lawrence is. Yeah, this is he's so awkward. This is great. Let's hear a clip of that. Warlock, that's right. We've all been dreadfully worried about you. I came to find the other Scarman. The other... You mean your brother, Lawrence? The human. Look here, old chap. If this is some kind of macabre joke. Where is the other Scarman? <laughs> <laughs> Love how he can't remember his brother. It's like, oh, yes, I'm here to see my brother. I... I'm look. I'm here for the other Scarman, the human. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that just doesn't seem quite right. Uh, so they uh, he calls on a mummy to kill Professor Warlock because he doesn't do it himself. And uh, as they're walking off, the hunter is outside and he loads his gun and follows. So he's he sees something wrong here. Oh yeah, he and he shoots Marcus. Mm-hmm. And yeah. uh, and and there's this well, great. Oh, yeah, go ahead. Th- that's about to happen. Actually, oh, um, right. Yeah. 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 So, but, but just before that, the doctor in the priestol is talking about that Sutek is in Saqqara in Egypt, somewhere in a blind pyramid. And so he has to jam Sutek's mental control of everything that's going on in England in order to stop him. But this is, but then as Marcus is about to discover the priestol, that's when uh, the right. hunter. Yeah. So the poacher shoots through the window at Marcus, and there's this great special effect where they. What they must have done is like have a a smoke squib mm-hmm. under the actor's vest, and so smoke would spray out from uh from from the actor's vest. But they reverse it so yeah. the the film so that it looks like smoke is being sucked into this little hole in right. his chest, that, and that is a great effect. It, it it's really unexpected and looks cool. Even though if you think about it, it's obvious how they did it. Yeah. By the way, I liked a line where they're talking about Sutek's tomb over in Saqqara. Lawrence is saying, if I recall correctly, that his brother had learned that there was inside a pyramid over there, there was a mastaba. Yes. And that's the most bizarre thing you could say <laughs> from an right. e- Egyptological perspective, because what a mastaba is, is what pyramids originated from. Originally, right. the Egyptians would bury their dead in, like, pits. But that wasn't great because animals would come and scavenge them. Mm. And so they would put a stone kind of structure, slab-like structure, over them to protect them. And that's what a mastaba is. Mastaba is the Arabic word for bench because mm. they look like benches. And so they would put a, a mastaba over the grave, and then to decorate it later on, this was the second stage, they said, hey, we could put a smaller mastaba on top of the big mastaba, <laughs> and then we could put an even smaller mastaba on that one, and you'd get this wedding cake-like yep. pyramid structure. And that was the origin of the pyramids. The first big one is called the step pyramid, and because it's got this step-like structure, like a wedding cake. And then they said, hey, we could, like, fill in those gaps on the side so it would be smoother. We could put casing stones on it and get a smooth pyramid, and that's how we got pyramids. So the idea that you'd have a mastaba inside a pyramid is either a really interesting Egyptian architectural figure or a sign <laughs> that the scriptwriter didn't really know what a mastaba was. <laughs> that's right. So we could create a nice bi-level effect, put a smaller one on the next one, and and then uh, you could just imagine the conversation. Uh, my mastaba is taller than his because I've put another block on it. Oh, yeah? yeah. I'm going to put two blocks on mine, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, which is probably what happened. So, yeah. Uh, so, yeah. So the, the, the poacher has shot him and distracted Marcus from opening up the priest hole. He sends the mummies to, to run after the, the, the poacher. Well, let's put it the poacher's running. The mummies are lumbering slowly. Oh, and yes. managing to keep pace because monsters in movies move as fast as the the running person. Uh, so the doctor finds Namin's ring that he needs uh, to track Sutek. That's uh, that's how he's going to track out where uh, track where Sutek is, as well as uh, equipment that Marcus and the mummies, which we found out are now really robots, are using to build some type type of rocket. 
and that's all in the were all in the stuff that had been sent back from Egypt in the same room as the TARDIS. The Doctor and Lawrence now have to duck into the TARDIS to hide, um, and of course Lawrence is astounded. And it it's interesting at this point with the Fourth Doctor how much glee he takes in people discovering that that the TARDIS is bigger on the inside. Mm-hmm. Like different doctors have different reactions to people doing this. But the fourth doctor has this like manic glee on his face, like a child. Yeah. I, I just enjoy that. Now that they're back in the TARDIS, Sarah's like, okay, I just want to leave and go back to 1981 since we know that Sutek doesn't succeed, right? So we might as well just go. But it's interesting that the doctor at this point shows her that always in full motion the future is, <laughs> and that if they leave now, this is the alternative future that would play out, and they go to 1980, open the door, and the Earth is a desolate wasteland. So obviously, 1911 is not a fixed point in time. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> Which did not exist as a concept, by the way, in classic. Yeah, right, right. I really like how this is played, because Sarah is like, let's just get out of here. And the doctor is like, well, if you want, and and he takes her there, and he doesn't make a big production out of it. He he just lets her see what will happen yeah. and says, if you want to get off and, <laughs> and, and, yeah. and that's the world that Sutek leaves behind. Right. And it's very understated how they do this. And I thought it was very effective. This was much more effective than him giving her a lecture yes. about, about all this, just letting us see the devastated earth of the future with no life on it and a howling storm going on. That really effectively makes the point. And the fact the doctor is so low key about it just heightens the drama of what we've just seen, especially in contrast to all the lush greenery we've been we've been seeing in all of these other episodes back in 1911. I mean, the the grass and the forest and the trees, everything is just green outside intensely. So that's right. So the doctor, the doctor's asked. Why didn't the Osirens just kill Horus and when they when they captured him? And he tells them that well, that's because the apparently the death penalty is against their code. They were not going to kill him, so instead they imprisoned him in a force field on Earth, controlled from a power source located on Mars, which is thus out mm-hmm. of the reach. As you do, as you do. Uh, I guess they also left behind the materials in order to create a rocket that would fly to Mars. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, but okay, I'm not sure they, they that was a good idea. But the so the rocket the robots are building will carry a warhead to destroy the power source. But think about also the way they've trapped him because he's got this headdress on. You know, we know that's not his real face. Yeah, because the doctor tells us what they're that they have dome like heads with cerebrums like spiral staircases. Yeah, but he's got when we see Sutek, he's got this long head. So that's a, that's a headdress. And they've got him seated in a chair, and he never, and until episode four, he never moves. Yeah, he's just no. sitting there with his hands on his legs. And the fact that he never moves is actually itself creepy. Mm-hmm, I mean, he's right. just dominating this plot, despite the fact he never even moves. His eyes may light up, but that's it. Yeah. And so that's really creepy. But the reason is because the Osirans have paralyzed him. And so they've entombed him alive for all eternity. He can't, he's got a headdress on. He can't lift his hands from his knees and scratch his nose. (laughs) Wow, they're cold. Yeah, Yeah. yeah. I think definitely. We've seen his nose. We've seen his nose. It's long. Yeah, Yeah. right. (laughs) Needs a lot of scratching. So at this point, Lawrence overhears the doctor and telling Sarah that if they do manage to block Sutek's transmission, Marcus, who is is an animated corpse at this point, uh, Leonard uh, Lawrence doesn't want to believe it, but he's an animated corpse. He'll collapse and he'll be done. So that that and so that he he doesn't want that to happen. He thinks he can still save his brother. Um, meanwhile, the robots have caught the hunter and crushed him in a in a bear hug sandwich. Uh, wow. But yeah. but uh, Lawrence shoots at them ineffectively. And so the ro- robots start running after him. And uh, Sarah then switches on the radio telescope, now modified to block Sutek's signal. But the mummies come in, they attack, they destroy the transmitter. And Sarah uses Namin's ring to send the robots away, which is lucky. And then the doctor berates yeah. Lawrence and repeats that Marcus is just an animated corpse now. 
Yeah, she she just tells the, the robots, like, return to control. Yeah. And so they go back to the manor house. The uh, the doctor and Sarah now uh, scout out the missile being constructed, and they come up with a plan to blow up the missile using some explosives that the poacher used for fishing called Jelly right. Knight. Yeah, so uh, he's the I love the poacher was been, you know doing dynamite fishing. So he's got rabbit. He's got a, he's got his gun for the big game. He's got yes. his traps for the rabbits, and he's got his dynamite for the fish. I yep. love this guy. He's he's a basically a redneck, <laughs> British oh, yeah. redneck. Oh, yeah. <laughs> also, the 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 missile that they're building is not really a missile. Yeah. From what we like, we would expect they've got a they're building a big white pyramid tent like thing yeah on the lawn or on a platform on the lawn and i think we're meant to understand that the missile is inside it and really small perhaps um, yeah. because you have people going in and out of it. you have robots going in and out of it to carry in supplies into it but the doctor alludes to this being a classic osirian design and he he name checks pyramid power which was a big thing in the 1970s when this was filmed. The idea <laughs> oh, that yeah. you could use pyramids to d- give you power to do stuff like keep yeah. razor blades sharp and meat fresh, yeah. which, by the way, use your fridge instead. Just <laughs> right. Yes, please do. Well, and, and they, they said that the missile flies by projection. So in other words, basically, Sutek's going to use his mental projection to oh. launch this thing. Well, it saves on it fuel, that's like, for sure. Yeah, exactly. You don't have to worry about a booster rocket. Uh, Jellignite, by the way, is no, also known as blasting gelatin, and uh, it's an explosive material consisting of uh, like cotton, like gun cotton, mm-hmm. and dissolved in nitroglycerin, nitroglycerin and wood pulp. And it's usually stable in its basic form, but if it starts to sweat, it beca- like dynamite, it becomes mm-hmm. very unstable. So uh, that's going to be- doctor- tells that to sarah after she tosses him a box of it <laughs> yes i like that uh and uh yeah he's like don't don't throw it that's like me with my kids don't throw that uh yeah. th- so the doctor tells lawrence stay you, you let your kids play with sweaty gelignite they no they play with br- breakable things and they throw them at each other they throw them to okay. each other to, like plates and well, i thought you were gonna say c4 instead of yeah, yeah. we only use c4. c4 in my house yeah that's the, that's <laughs> much safer to yeah. play with so the, the doctor tells Lawrence to stay in the lodge and start unwrapping the deactivated mummy. Got a plan. The doctor and Sarah find the deflection barrier in one of those canopic jars that control it, and, that, and he deactivates it very carefully using the sonic. And Sutek is very unhappy and knows that there's an alien intelligence present now. So it's not just humans he's dealing with. He knows that there's an alien among them. Be- because 1910 humans wouldn't know how to take down part of his force field exactly uh at the at the hunters the poachers hut they found the doctor tells sarah that nobody in the universe can stand against sutek not even the time lords this is where that comes up and he was uh, only stopped before by the combined might of the 740 gods who sarah knows are the names recorded in the tomb of tutmos the third which is a, a bit of an obscure egyptology fact mm-hmm. so sarah's yeah. on the ball she's doing one of those uh great courses with she the, probably knows what a mastaba is <laughs> she's <laughs> she didn't correct him on that. Uh, so uh, Marcus shows up at the lodge, and Lawrence tries to get him to recognize him, but Marcus starts hurting him to find out about the doctor, starts torturing him to find out about the doctor. Oh, yeah. Lawrence is such an idiot in this scene. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Treating, his, treating his brother as if he's still really alive. And for a moment, he starts to make progress. He's able, by showing him a picture of the two of them as young men, Marcus yeah. starts to remember, oh, I was Marcus. But then he, he over... Lawrence overplays his hand and gets killed. Yep. Poor Lawrence. So Lawrence is dead when the doctor and Sarah come back. The doctor starts wrapping himself in the mummy's bindings. And when he's done, he says, how do I look? And Sarah says, must have been a nasty accident. He says, don't provoke me. (laughs) (laughs) It was a funny exchange. So the plan is for the doctor to place the explosive next to the missile. And Sarah Jane will set it off with a rifle shot. He, Sarah Jane is apparently a sharpshooter here. Yes, uh, and awesome. this is this is awesome because yeah. she, the doctor explains to her, you really have to hit this the first time. You will not get a second shot. And without blinking, she just says, don't worry, I know what I'm doing. <laughs> so it's like she's apparently been out to the range a lot. <laughs> you know, this is the type of rifle we would use here, at least here in the States, for deer hunting. I mean, you know, something yeah. like a 243 or 270 or something along that caliber. So it's, this isn't an easy thing to shoot. You know, we're not taking yeah. a little plinker gun. 
Yeah. Uh, this I is like something Sarah Jane. that I mean you I I know this is why one of the reasons why Sarah Jane was so popular as a companion. She had the personality, but she also and and the looks, but she also gets to do stuff like this. Yeah. Yes. It, even in Joe Grant's time, I mean in with Joe Grant, Sarah's predecessor, we saw little flashes of things like she was supposed to be trained as a secret agent and she was a yeah. lockpick and all that stuff, but and so but she was sidelined so much she didn't right. really get to use her skills effectively and here the doctor is trusting sarah with a crucial piece of the plot that involves her being an expert marksman yeah right yeah, in many ways she she becomes the equal of the doctor in yeah certain situations you know, like yep. this so the doctor is goes to place the explosive box uh, but he's almost caught by marcus who who shows up and starts ordering him to he places it, and as he's walking away, Marcus comes in. Where are you going? Come back here. And uh, but uh, he he ends up getting away. And then Sarah Jane shoots the explosive, explosive, and it explodes. Starts but Sut- to yeah. Sutek manages to contain the explosion with his mental power, and he's holding it in. So the it's he has to keep holding the explosion in until the rocket's mm-hmm. away. And the doctor knows this is expending a lot of mental energy. So if he can distract Sutek before the explosive can be removed. That will allow it to explode in place and destroy the rocket. So to do that, he has to go through the, that time tunnel in the sarcophagus. And meanwhile, Scarman and the mummies are trying to get the box away from the mm-hmm. missile so it can blow up safely elsewhere. Right. So the doctor travels to Saqqara, to the tomb that's holding uh, Sutek. And as he enters, he, the doctor whispers, Sutek, last of the Osirens, which distracts Sutek long enough to set off the bomb. So uh, Sutek is not happy with that, and he hits him with the green light, and the doctor is like, ah, and is in pain, but doesn't kill the doctor, of course. And and this was important, the missile. So the missile's destroyed now, and Mm -hmm. the missile was going to smash something on at the Pyramid of Mars that's holding Sutek in place. So now that the missile's been destroyed, his chance to be freed is seemingly gone, and he's right. really unhappy about that. Yeah, that was right. that was the power source that was always going to hit, which would knock down the beam that would allow him to get free. So I wonder yes. if Elon Musk will find it when they finally when SpaceX the finally of gets Mars. to Mars. Yeah, yeah. Yes. Send curiosity over there. I want to go see it. So uh, <laughs> he he uh, demands to know the doctor's identity, where he comes from. Uh, then he offers. It's, I find this this next bit interesting because you know now he knows he's a time lord. He offers him an empire if he will serve him. I've heard that before. Somewhere. Yeah, it sounds a lot like the devil's temptation of Jesus in the desert, which is interesting. Yeah. Given mm-hmm. that Set is a kind of uh, well, he even calls himself the devil. Satan as one of his titles. Right. Yeah, the doctor calls him Set, Satan, Sodos. The irony here, by the way, is that the actor who plays Sutek is Gabriel Wolf, who will mm-hmm. later play the voice of the Beast. From Impossible Planet in the Satan Pit. So yep. yeah. he's made a career of playing Satan in <laughs> Doctor Who, apparently. <laughs> uh, also, also, and we haven't seen this one yet, but there's the third Doctor story, uh, The Demons, mm-hmm. where we have demons, but they're aliens from another planet. <laughs> because it's always aliens. It's so, always <laughs> aliens and it's always demons. <laughs> yep. Demon aliens. So uh, meanwhile, Sarah's been captured. And the when the Doctor cries out as she's about to be executed, Sutek tells Marcus to wait instead. Uh, and so Sutek means to use the TARDIS to escape, and Marcus is to take one of the robots in the TARDIS to the pyramids of Mars. Yeah. And- By the way, I, one thing I wanted to mention is in our, in Set's initial who are you bit, yep. mm-hmm. which comes out a piece at a time from the Doctor, mm-hmm. he, he doesn't just say, I'm the oncoming storm, blah, 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 blah. <laughs> right. He gives him, I mean, he's in the ant termite position right now. This is when that conversation mm-hmm. occurs. But Sutek pulls it out of him a piece at a time. And one of the things that he references is he's from a planet in the constellation of Casturbarus. And this is the first time we oh. have a reference to the constellation of Casturbarus, even though it makes no sense to identify yourself as coming from a constellation because from your home planet, you wouldn't see that constellation. Interesting. And then they do kind of call call him on that because then then uh, Sutek says, "Well, what's the the binary coordinates?" Right. Like, where in the galaxy is it? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, and, but also, I love how in this scene, Sutek is so understated. 
Yeah. He, it, it, many actors at this point would have chosen to go all ranty, screamy, mm-hmm. especially because they're behind that mask. So they would think they need to over emote to compensate for that. And you'd get a cackling, screaming villain stereotype. But Sutek is just totally calm yep. and venomous, but totally calm. So uh, Sutek wants Marcus and the robot to go to Mars to de- de- deactivate the, the power source uh, using the TARDIS. He sends the TARDIS key floating through the time tunnel over back to England. Uh, but the doctor says he's, he can get in, but he's not going to be able to uh, fly the TARDIS because the controls are isomorphic, meaning they're tied to the doctor. That no one else can fly yep. it. Uh, that will ev- and, evidently change. <laughs> and, and, and this is something, there's, a, there's something that's really nicely set up here in Holmes' script, where earlier, talking about Marcus Scarman, Sutek has said, well, you know, I'm totally in control of him. My mind is in his. Yeah. And now when the doctor explains that the TARDIS controls can only be worked by him, Sutek just says, my mind is in yours. Right. Yep. And he possesses the doctor. Right. And luckily the doctor's not dead here. He's not an animated corpse like Marcus is. Yeah. Uh, but they, 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 he sends the doctor back through. Um, they get to- in the TARDIS. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, and they go to the pyramid singular of Mars. Yes. Mm-hmm. The, so the why is it? Why is the title plural? <laughs> right. Well, and we don't actually see a pyramid. It's just a room. Yeah. <laughs> so, also, but, I want to uh, know where the where what are the ice warriors doing? What's their take on all uh, this? That's what I was thinking about too. Yep. Uh, so once they get there, they're in this chamber uh, in the cavern. Marcus orders the robot. They call them servicers but it's a, a robot, to kill the doctor, and it strangles him until he falls to the floor, and then they enter the pyramid. But he's not dead yet. <laughs> he's got a, it turns out Time Lords have a backup respiratory system that he was using to breathe yep. while he was being strangled. <laughs> I'm feeling better. I think I'll go for a walk, to quote Monty yeah. Python. <laughs> so the, the, uh, they, they start following him through, the, the, it, through these various chambers to get to the center. It's very Egyptian, by the way, this idea of like multiple chambers to get through, mm-hmm. uh, if, if, or at least it, what we think of as Egyptian. Yeah. So the door release isn't the obvious button on the wall. It's a hidden button that they have to find. Yeah. They, and they have this whole series of things, and, uh, including traps and puzzles and stuff mm-hmm. like that, and riddles. Yep. And I'm going, you know, Osir- ancient Osirans, we have this modern thing called a lock. You might want to try that. <laughs> yeah, a key, a, a, a touchpad. Hey, you can even do like your face, facial recognition would be good. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I, I, like, I like how at one point the doctor, because Sarah sees Marcus go through first and mm-hmm. he like waves his hands and a panel opens up at, to get him into the first door. And so when the doctor does that, Sarah looks at him and says, tripophysics. And I'm going, really? I didn't see the doctor rub anything there. Tribophysics is the physics of friction. Huh. So. Again, I'm, someone I'm using glad a word. I'm you, <laughs> glad you know this word, Sarah, but I, I do not think it means what you think it means. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so in one of the puzzles or the traps, Sarah gets trapped in a in a, this tube that materializes around her. And then two robots appear who have gold sashes, so therefore they're not with uh, Set. Uh, and a voice tells them a riddle. One is programmed to deceive, the other points truly. The two switches on this tube control your fate, instant freedom or instant death. Before you choose, you can ask one of the gar- one guardian one question. This is the riddle of the Osirens. Which is the guardian of life? And I'm going, that is the riddle of the Osirens? Really? <laughs> this is a basic logic puzzle that if you mm-hmm. do any logic puzzles, you totally know this one. <laughs> right. And so the question that the doctor asks is, if I were to ask your fellow guardian the question, which switch would he indicate this is the one I should push? If you're the true guardian, that's going to be the death switch. And if you're the liar, you'd be trying to mislead me. So that will be the death. Must This is basically right out of Princess Bride with the Sicilian. With death on the line, <laughs> that yeah, was exactly. funnier. <laughs> so, so, uh, so he gets the he gets the right one. I think there was also one in an episode of uh, Star Trek: The Original Series, something like that. Well, I guess it doesn't it date back like to the Greeks. I mean, yes, it's yeah. An, this is yeah, this or, is a really old one, and there are much more complicated ones that could have they could have used, but yeah, didn't. they don't want to confuse the kids. Yeah. By the, by the way, there's a marvelous sight gag in this sequence at one point where. 
the doctor and Sarah are following Scarman and the robots, and and at one point, a robot turns around, and you as he's turning around, you see. Yeah. The doctor and Sarah approaching in the doorway, yes, and and they're about to be spotted by the robot, and without missing a beat, they simultaneously just pivot and walk back. <laughs> yep. yeah, that was with, a good one. <laughs> I love that's one of my. They've done that a couple of times. I can't remember what other episodes, but I think there's two or two other episodes where the fourth doctor and Sarah do the simultaneous <laughs> turn and go they back. Do, yeah, he'll turn it out. Uh, yeah, I, I I did laugh when I saw that. Uh, meanwhile, Marcus is now in the inner chamber with the Eye of Horus, which is a big glowing eggy thing. As he goes to destroy it, one of more, Ho- more the egg of Horus. You know, falcons <laughs> do lay eggs. Yes, that's true. Big glowy uh, pink ones. And so one of Horus's robots appears, and now the two robots start doing Rock'em Sock'em robots fighting. Uh, while they're occupied, Marcus transforms briefly into that green-eyed jackal figure that we saw in the beginning. The, mm-hmm. the animal that represents Set, and destroys the eye, at which uh, Sutek cries, free! So he's free. And that this is where Marcus meets his ultimate end. He collapses and dissolves. And in, in, in pretty graphic. He's uh, like mm-hmm. a burned corpse for a second before yeah. he fades out. And now this is where uh, all the Get Smart doors open back up to the TARDIS. So they have this tunnel back there <laughs> so they can get smart. Yeah. Uh, I'm showing my age. And the doctor... Ha- the, I have an idea. Close, closing credits of Get Smart. That's yeah. right. Uh, I have an idea. They run for, then they run for it. They've got time. He says to to do so. Back at the two, house, two minutes. Two minutes. Which is that accurate? No, it's not. <laughs> Mars is always like around at least four mi- light minutes away. Okay, well, this, so this, the doctor this, has this more time than faster. He this travels faster than light, so that's. But not, oh no, he says it's the time radio waves take to get back to Earth. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> uh, so back at the house on Earth, the Doctor and Sarah are in the storeroom, running out of the TARDIS, carrying something. Uh, Sutek in the tomb stands up, and for just a moment, you can see where he was sitting, a hand of a stagehand up above the seat behind him. I, I don't know what he was doing, but the. The stage is like, whoop, pulls his hand back quickly out of sight. I thought it was hysterical. <laughs> it was very clear on the screen. Um, Sutek's helmet disappears, and all we get is that animal head. Um, and as he comes through the time tunnel, the doctor traps him in the vortex, vortex and sends him into the far... F- I, at this, I got a little confused. He sent him into the far future where he will have died no matter how long he lived? I, I this is a little confusing. I took it as he's trapping him in a time loop long enough so that he as he's moving into the future in this time mm-hmm. loop, he is also aging and going to outrun the lifespan of an Osirin. Right. Okay. And die while he's in the time trap. Okay. But this is just like that other Doctor Who story we saw where the, where the uh Time Lash? Clause Clause of Axos. Oh, Klaus where, this, right. where the solution was put the enemy in a time loop. That's right. Yep. That's right. Uh, so the meanwhile, the sarcophagus, the time tunnel sarcophagus, catches fire and and closes the the the, the time paradox, so that uh, the it's going to burn the priory down, so that it can be replaced by the new unit headquarters. Mm-hmm. And the doctor says, "Let's get out of here, uh, so I don't get blamed again, like that time in 1666, which he's referring to the Great London Fire, which apparently the doctor." is blamed for setting whether he actually did or not. Well, and he was also there in his fifth incarnation where we saw it was started right. by Terraleptals, but apparently he's been there more than once. Oh, right. So right. apparently he doesn't realize that he really was responsible for it, at least at this point. <laughs> it's right. All right. So that uh, brings us to the end of of this episode. Uh, Father Corey, any last notes on this one? Uh, just, uh, first of all, I, I love Sarah. This is Sarah at the most snarky in yes. this episode. She yeah. was just fantastic. Uh, and then I didn't notice, but when the when uh, Sutek sent that coordinate canister, the the coordinates for the the rocket, as Zombie Scarman picks it up, it's sizzling. Yeah, it's just yeah. Kind of again, kind of that creep factor of like, ooh. <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, Jimmy, anything left? No, I really like Sarah's. Sarah has great chemistry with the Doctor. Tom Baker and Elizabeth Slayton really had great chemistry, and it comes yeah. across well. And the Robert Holmes writing is really nice. I thought aspects of this were a little slow, but the visuals in it for the time are really impressive with the, uh, I mean, we have, we have all the Egyptian stuff 
which looks really good, even though you can tell it's a set and no, mm-hmm. those aren't real hieroglyphics. <laughs> and, but then you've got the lush exterior, you know, greenery, you have the mansion, you have the special effects where they're chroma keying in stuff. It's just really visually nice. It's not my favorite Tom Baker era story, but it is a really good one. I like it. Yeah, I really enjoyed this one. This was really good. I'm trying to think, like, after they, the house burned down, so some of the bodies were inside the house. I wonder how they explained, like, the dead bodies in the lodge and the poacher <laughs> and, the, oh, and the robots. That's a, matter, that's a matter for the police. Time is the doctor's area. Yeah, unit, unit came in and cleaned it up. I mean, and no that's when they, they decided. Back then. Yeah, that's when they decided this is where we'll build our headquarters. Uh, all right. So that uh, brings us to a close on this one. So, and before we, we go, I want to take a moment to thank our patrons who make it possible for us to create the secrets of Doctor Who, including Daniel M., Joel C., John M., Jeffrey B., and Ben and Autumn B. Their generous donations at sqpn.com slash give make it possible for us to continue the secrets of Doctor Who and all the shows at StarQuest. You can join them by visiting sqpn.com slash give. We'd also like to thank Victor Lambs, who edits the show for us every week. So that's it from us. What did you think of the Pyramids of Mars? You can let us know by commenting on the show at sqpn.com or the Secrets of Doctor Who Facebook page, or send an email to Who at sqpn.com. And we'll be back next time when we'll be having our 200th episode celebration. We have something special planned for that, of course. And uh, so we hope you'll enjoy that. So be sure to stay subscribed for that. Until then, Father Corey Stika, thank you for joining me and sharing the secrets of Doctor Who. Thank you, Dom. Jimmy Aiken, thank you as well. Thanks, Dom. And once again, I'm Dom Bettinelli. Thank you for listening to the secrets of Doctor Who on StarQuest. And remember, deactivating a generator loop without the correct key is like repairing a watch with a hammer and chisel. One false move and you'll never know the time again. Right. This is going to be fun.